Please be seated, and as you're seated, take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of James. James, at the, towards the end of your Bible, um, we are going to continue to study uh, through the, well, we, over the summer we've been studying through the fruit of the Spirit, and I, I, in connection with that, I want to talk about humility. Now, humility, as we look through the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it's not one of them, but especially in something I read in preparation for this, it really showed that a lot of ways the humility is the precursor. It has to come ahead of seeing fruit, spiritual fruit, grow inside of our life. I was struck by that in reading Jerry Bridges' book, The, the Fruitful Life. It's, we have a copy out there on the book table. Um, but I thought, you know what, humility really needs to be connected with this as we see uh, the context for spiritual growth. So. As you remember, over the last few months, we've been preaching through the fruit of the Spirit, and I'll say them now with you. You, you can say them together with me if you, if you know them, uh, but it's from Galatians 5, 22. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so again, what we want to do today is look through James 4, the context of where that all grows out of and what it all points to in humility. So this is James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James 4, 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4, 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us, lead us. This is a place we need to grow. We need to grow in humility. And Father, we won't unless we uh, get a sense of your glory, unless we get a sense of your wonder, and as, Father, as we get a sense of our need. And so, Lord, as we look at this, help us to see the important place this is, and help us just as we meditate on this, consider our own lives, and to see where you're calling us to grow and to change. We ask you this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we want to look at today is humility as a consequence of faith, but also as a, as a prerequisite for faith, right? It's a consequence of faith. Once a person has faith in Jesus, humility is something that they're going to grow in, but we also see it's a precursor to it. 
We might see humility as part of regeneration, or we might think of, of humility as part of effectual calling. Humility is something that we need to, that, that God gives us, uh, and we have a sense of our own need, and that helps us to come to faith in Christ to see our need of forgiveness. And that's how we see it presented in here. If you look at James 4, 5, and 6 again, it says, Do you suppose that is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. That's, a, that's the connection we want to have here between spiritual fruit and humility. God gives the grace that grows up the spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God grows that up through the soil of a humble heart. And if you who garden, you know you need good soil to see things grow. And the soil that we see uh, the spiritual fruit grow out of is one of a humble heart which is submitted to God. Now the greatest hindrance of the grace of God working our life also comes from verse six, and it says that God opposes the proud. I had this picture of a great dam of God's grace, or a great reservoir of God's grace, and there's this dam of, of, of pride, which keeps us from experiencing that grace, which would cause uh, growth inside of our lives. But it's more than that. We actually see an opposition, the difficulty of life that comes when a person is proud. Pride is that perception that we're self-sufficient, right? That cuts us off from God's grace. Pride is the perception that we need to make decisions without God. Again, cutting us off from the resources that God gives us. Pride is the perception that we're smarter or better than others. Again, a wall that sets us off from the grace that is available in God. It's the overinflated belief about ourselves that keeps us from his power. Now, I doubt that many people believe they are proud people, at least proud in a negative sort of way. I mean, people talk about pride as, as a virtue. We can see it all around in our world today. Uh, many people think, well, I have pride, but it's, it's a good kind of pride. And no, it's not. I mean, pride is never spoken of as a positive thing. It's, it's rebellion against God. It's a barrier against others. It's not a virtue, and it, it, it never can be. But how do people usually discover that they're proud? And how does pride get revealed to us? How does God communicate to us? There's a pride which is hindering us from his grace. It's so often uh, when, we, um, you know, when we come into a conflict, when we hit some trouble, and we, you know, we wonder at some point, you know, am I a contributor to that problem? And discovering that maybe there's something in our life that is hindering us from moving forward, pride doubles down into it. It sinks its way into it, and it commits its way uh, to that lifestyle, to that habit, you know, to that belief. Not seeing or rejecting the very sense that maybe that's the problem which we're having. That's the opposition of God, um, the, the, the opposition that the proud have to the Lord. I saw this in a little sense over the last few weeks. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that, that we had a small house fire, that our dryer caught on fire, and it spread smoke all through the house, and so there's smoke damage through the house, and they're working to um, 
get rid of that smoke, and so we're living in a hotel for, for a period of time while they deal with that. Um, when the fire came, um, there was, no smoke, there, there was no, no smoke alarm went off. Now, if I burn something when I'm cooking in the kitchen, my smoke alarm was going to go off, I'm telling you. But the second that there's a house fire where, like, the house could actually go up and smoke, for some reason, there is no smoke alarm that's going off. Thankfully, my wife was there, and thankfully, she uh, saved us from that fire. But after that, my neighbor, he comes out, and he says, Sean, let me sell you on something. I have the security system, which you really need to buy. You really need to get into this security system because, you know, you obviously, you know, it didn't work, what you have. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I got a plan. I'll get to it when I can get to it. There's a lot of things going on. And I kind of dismissed it as those those things. So fast forward to this last week. What happens this last week? But we actually get robbed. So so I'm going in and out of my house. I'm leaving one night and I'm going in and out of my house and I lock the door and I check my oil. I I change something on my oil. I shut it and then it's like, oh, I forgot something in the house. So I go in and I get that thing and I come out and guess what I forgot to do? I forgot to lock the door. And that happens to be the day that somebody, we caught him on video, comes up to the door, jiggles the handle and notices it's open. And thank God it's only the drill set that my mom gave me for Christmas. So I'm still a little mad by that. But thankfully it was only that. So the next morning um, when I'm, you know, we caught it on video. We were there first thing in the morning after it happened. And then the police are there and my neighbor, he comes out. And he says, see, Sean, I told you that you should have had a security system. So I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. And so actually this time I listened, and so I got, I got all that started up. But, you know, a little bit of humility. You realize I am keep doing something, it's just not working out. Maybe I need to go back and check the things that I'm doing. When we see a lack of fruit inside of our lives, a lack of spiritual progress, constant conflict with others, the regressing to old sins, you know, could it simply be because pride keeps us from the power of God? We've just dug in our heels against God and against his word, right? When we're proud against God and his resources, we resolve to live however we want, regardless of his commands. We think we know better. We justify our sin um, that's there. Uh, we try to get out of our problems by our own power instead of trusting and obeying. I mean, humility recognizes that we are not sovereign. We're not all-powerful. Humility acknowledges that we're not all-knowing, that we can be wrong, that in and of ourselves we're not sufficient. Humility is a recognition that there is a God, and it's not us. So James 4 is a good place to understand humility. If you look at verse 6, remember it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the, the truth of humility. If a person wants God's grace, wants God's power, they must be humble. Lacking humility, we will only know the resistance of God. He opposes the proud. But if you look at verse 10, we see the command. Jump down to verse 10. The command is there, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so between those things, we see this this example of, hey, God blesses this behavior. Here's all the things that you need to do in it. Now do it. It's a simple command. Humble yourself before the Lord. If you want to do well, if you want to grow, if you want to get out of being stuck, humble yourself. If you want to go to heaven, to know God's presence, to experience love, joy, and peace, the fruit of the Spirit, if you want the exaltation of God, then humble yourself. 
All right, let's look at a few things as we see the importance of humility. Number one is the need, verses one through six, the need. James writes this letter to address a conflict in the church. And as I read it, I think it's a pretty big conflict. There's a doozy of a conflict inside of the church at the time. And he doesn't mince his words as he addresses that problem. And when he begins with it, he, he deals it with their pride, but he deals with the pride in their desires. If you look at verse 1, you see him addressing the desires which are creating the conflict in them. Verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He's describing these inordinate desires which are causing conflicts. And how often is it our own desires which lead us into conflicts? We want something and, and we see someone else is in the way uh, between us and getting that. And so we attack them. We quarrel. We fight. We judge them. Right? That, that thing that we want, the thing that we demand becomes more important than their own rights. And, and it's something we demand. James describes it as a war. You see that in verse 1? Just like a war between nations, fighting between two interests, we see the desires of one person being pitted against the desires of another in a winner-takes-all conflict. So when that fight erupts, it's like a war. Some of you grew up in homes where there was this war that was going on, and as soon as it began to erupt, you know, what would you as a kid want to do? You want to duck your head and you want to get out there because you know the battle and you know there's casualties in it, and you just don't want to get sucked up into it. It's, 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 it's ugly when you see it from a distance, right? James 1 reminds us also of the need of, or James chapter 4 verse 1 reminds us of the need for humility. I said a couple weeks ago talking about gentleness that some people look at gentleness as, as, as not being virtuous, right? They look at it as weak. And some people see the similarity uh, with humility as something that's weak. But I, I just want to ask you, if you think humility is weak, you know, do, then you're signing up for James 4.1. You know, is that what you want in your marriage? Is that what you want in your church? Is that what you want in the nation? Is that what you want in the band of brothers that you communicate with? You know, those who communicate in any way that humility is weak are signing up for James 4.1, and we see it. It's not weak. It's obedience to God. And because sin is so strong, it actually requires quite a bit of, of strength, spiritual strength inside of us to create a humility inside of our lives. Pride keeps us from being the people that God calls us to be. And I hate to imagine that many of us just are, find ourselves in ongoing conflict and because of pride. Verses 2 and 3, we read this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James knows the goals of fighting. He lists them in verse 3, wanting something, seeing the way is hindered, and the necessity to fight for it. Maybe you say something terrible. Murder is mentioned, certainly the murder of the heart, as we really wish this person would just get out of our way, would die, and would, would, would stop being a trouble for us. Jesus said that's a murder of our own, inside of our own heart, even if it's not expressed outwardly. Fighting against another person to get it, whatever it takes, except for to pause and to ask God. But that's the path of humility that James lists down there, is to first bring it to God. 
Ask God for perspective on it. Ask God to provide it for us. Ask God. Talk to, the other per- talk to God before you talk to that other person. And as we see, God is opposed to the, pr- to, to the proud. Those who fight and constantly fight in order to get their way, they find the opposition of God. They find difficulty. Oftentimes in their pride, even in, um, he, he shows here that there are prayers that we can pray, which are proud, arrogant prayers before God. And, and they're, they're not really prayers because they're not really dealing with God as he reveals himself in the word. God isn't likely to answer those prayers either and because there's sin that's wrapped up in that. But a person humbles themselves before God and prays. They look to God providing the answer. That's a, that's a picture of prayer. What's really going on in the conflict? We could look at verse 4. It says, you adulterous people. He calls it spiritual adultery. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, the work of God in creation and his covenant creates an exclusive marriage-like relationship with God. You are created by God and you are created for God. You're created for a relationship with him. If you're saved... and you're in the covenant of God, you were uh, redeemed by God, and you were redeemed for him. We're created for a friendship with him. But when we love the world, it is as if we set ourselves with another lover. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be seen as a spiritual adulterer when I come before the judgment seat of God. Can you imagine standing before God and saying, you promised yourself, where God says to us, you promised yourself to me but you loved and gave yourself to the world. What a painful picture of the judgment seat of God that that would be. So when we look for the applause of the world, when we make worldly demands of control and power, we want people to applaud our intelligence, we want to be comfortable and live easy lives with other people serving us instead of us serving God, we are at enmity with God. When we choose sin through anger, lust, the love of money, or envy, when we live prayerless lives and when we avoid worship, we choose another lover other than God. So what is pride but thinking that we can do better than God? This is the very temptation that hit Adam and Eve inside of the garden. The devil told them that they can do better if they ignore God's word and if they eat the forbidden fruit. They can do better than God has for them. And that plunged them. That decision to eat that fruit plunged them and all of us into a world of sin. That's what pride is, is thinking that we can do better than God. Maybe it's thinking that his commands are outmoded. We think that we can do better if we ignore his commands. We, we love what the world says. Maybe we love what some person on social media says that weighs more than God's word. We, we spend more time scrolling through our phones for answers than reading the Bible or other Christian books. This is a big problem with, with liberal Christianity. It tries to be humble. And it says that but it does it by ignoring God's commands. I mean, it thinks that God's commands are too hard for most people. So instead of raising people up to know them, to understand them, and to live by grace and to walk in them, it reduces them. It changes the commands. I mean, that's not humility. It's not humility to take one of the commands of God and to change it. That's his pride. Pride is, is thinking that we know better than God and the commands of his word. Pride loves the world. It loves the world so much that, that even when it doesn't work out, the proud person digs their heels in. 
Maybe they just haven't tried hard enough. Or maybe other people are the problem. But that isn't it, is it? Things we need wisdom from God. We need God's word. We need the wisdom of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need strong community um, helping us to walk with Christ, challenging one another, pointing to the gospel hope that's there. We glorify God as we're gathered together in community. I mean, that's why, you know, we really this year focus on the care groups, really encouraging care groups. Get together. Come under God's word together. Do with other people. Challenge one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Build one another up. So central to what we do. And just really encourage you as you look towards this year ahead of thinking, yeah, you know, how am I going to grow with other believers? How will I humble myself under God's word for this? In verse 5, we read this. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. What has God done? But he's put a new spirit inside of us, and he wants that spirit to change us, to bless us, to give us grace, to carry us through. He wants to see spiritual growth inside of us. That's why he is jealous for a spirit. Not to send his spirit out and that we... We um, quench the spirit. We resist the spirit. And we hear God's word and that tug on our conscience that we ignore it. No, he's jealous to see that God's spirit as it comes and that conscience is, is renewed, that, that we're, we hear the challenge of God's word, that we do something about it. He's jealous to see that that would happen in your life and it just God's word wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, that it wouldn't be you know, the seed that falls on the hard ground and produces no fruit He calls us to a soft heart to receive his word and to do something with that. So humility starts then with humility before God and its response to grace. That's the second thing we want to look at. It's a response to grace. Um, Grace leads us to humility. We see that it's the response to God's work in our life. We We also grow in humility as we know God's grace in our lives. If you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, I think it really speaks wonderfully of this. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, but it speaks about God's grace that leads to humility. When we remember the forgiving grace of God in our lives, we can remember to be humble before God and others. Pride happens when we, when we think that we're, we're better than others. But the Bible reminds us that all of us, every one of us, every single one of us has sinned against God that we've fallen short of God's glory. We remember that we are objects of God's wrath, that we are destined for destruction because of our sin. I mean, in sin, we were fools. We have traded the, um, the, the, the true God, the glory of God, for the worship of images and of animals and false spirits. We, we've loved the world over the one who created it. And that describes every one of us. We may not have sinned in the same way that others have sinned, but there is no doubt that we have sinned. We may have not sinned in the way that others have sinned, but you know what? We've sinned against ourselves. I mean, we know the depth of our sin that we can say along with the Apostle Paul, you know, I am the worst of sinners. You know, other people, you know some of their sins, but your own, you have that ringside seat of where you've fallen short of God's glory. But despite your sin, God still chose to love you. That is what is amazing about grace. Veronica, thank you for 
playing that song, just a reminder of the amazing grace that God really has shown to us. Because that was our condition, but God has given us so much what we didn't deserve. God has given us so much what our condition deserved. He has given us grace and he's given us love. That's where Ephesians 2 comes in. Let's just read this. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, that is all bad news. That is all our condition apart from Christ. That is all the graceful situation which all of us were born into through Adam. And then we see in verse 4, though, just the two most important words in the Bible, but God, right? But God. And we see the grace you showed to us. It says, but God being rich in mercy because the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ came to die for those sins that you've committed, to pay the penalty of them, to rise from the dead. You never could have paid the penalty of your sins, ever. But only he could, and he did. I mean, that ought to spur on humility if, if nothing else does. We cannot save ourselves. That's what verse 8 goes on to say. If you remember verse 8 and 9, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one would boast. Right? We don't want to miss out on the grace of God. But God acted contrary to what we deserved. But God met his, his justice and his mercy in Jesus Christ in order to save you. I mean, that is the grace of God. And that humbles us. There's another reason why we have to be humble before God. It's a reminder that so many of our gifts and privileges that we have are just gifts from him. I mean, one way that pride comes up is we think we're somehow superior to others. Sometimes we're better than them. We're more important than them. Uh, we might remember, as we think, if that ever comes up, it tempts us, that so many of the things that we have and enjoy in this world you know, came from no decision of our own. I mean, you might have money. You might have an education, success, a great job. You've done well. And there, you know, there's, there's nothing to take away from that. No shame in that. But there's a lot of things that you didn't choose. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose to be born in the United States of America. You didn't choose to be born in this time of history. You didn't choose to be born in a prosperous place or the parents you were born to, to the ethnic group that you're a part of. You didn't choose your genes. You didn't choose many of your experiences. And so whatever successes we have, we can have a little humility in it. Others have different experiences. We should encourage them what they have. So humility recognizes the things that we have come from God. It also recognizes the many sacrifices that people have made in order to give them to us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If you have something others don't have, then you remember that it is a gift from God and, you, and given to you to serve others with, but with humility. 
not a reason to be proud, disrespect, or to dismiss others. Seeing every other person has created the image of God, treating others with respect, men and women, people of every ethnic background, the poor and the rich, the PhD and the high school dropout, the conservative and the liberal, all are created in God's image and deserve to be treated with respect. All right, so getting back to James chapter 4, you know, we've seen the need of it. We've seen grace comes out of, um, or humility comes also as a response to grace in our lives. And in verse 7, we want to talk about the practice of humility. If you remember verse 6, it says that God um, gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, he commands us to be humble. Well, what about this middle part? What is this practice of humility, which is between those two bookmarks? What does that look like? Verse 7. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. I mean, the first instruction in this is to submit yourself to God as an act of the will. Right? This is where we start applying things. Is there, is there some place inside of your life where you need to submit yourself to God? Maybe it's something that you know the Bible teaches, but it isn't comfortable for you, that you've been resistant in doing it. Maybe it's because it's not a very popular thing in the world. And so instead of, instead of doing what God says, you've followed the ease of your own life or you've decided to follow the world. Maybe it's a place of obedience with your money, with your habits, your time, your sexuality. Will you humble yourself under the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God who also loves you? Submitting yourselves to God means reading your Bible, praying, being a part of the church. It's, it's how God tells us his will. You know, we need time to consider these things. Maybe submitting God means letting God meet your needs and stop trying to satisfy yourself in the world. Submission to God means that you may need to hold views that are contrary to the world. It's very relevant today for a believer to say that I fear God more than I fear man. I'll stick with God's word in this. James 4, 7 goes on to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil lied to Adam and Eve. He played to their pride. God told them not to eat the fruit, right? Ah, but they, they should know better. That's what the devil told them. They should know better. They could decide for themselves whether they should or not. And the devil will also tell you that you don't need God in a hundred of ways. I mean, he will, he will accuse God to you. He'll accuse God to your mind, to your heart. He'll accuse God inside the culture. He'll tell you that God is a waste of time, that you need to work on Sunday, you need to play on Sunday instead of worshiping. He'll accuse your other brothers and sisters in Christ and tell you that you're better than them, that you're too good for them. He will tell you you don't need to read the Bible. You're more important things to do. You don't, you don't need to pray. You're, you're okay. He will tell you you don't need God's commands, that you don't need to think much of God. He will tell you you don't need to pray for your kids, tell you you don't need family devotions. It's much of our world today. And, and as people take these lies in, it's no surprise the world erupts in chaos. The world tells us we don't need God. The world tells us to be proud against the creative designs of God. The world flaunts God's laws and it calls it pride. And that leads to chaos. And God opposes this pride. We need to humble ourselves and to pray, resisting the devil and his accusations. Verse 8 tells us what to do instead. 
verse 8 and 9, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, how do we do that? We get in God's word. We pray. We gather together for worship. We encourage believers in the Lord. We, we gather together in our care groups. We draw near to God and we do it together. And we have this promise, what? He will draw near to you. He goes on to say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's for a confession of our sins. It's a call to worship of God in his name, for the worship that's due his name. If we're going to know the grace God gives to the humble, we have to ask him to cleanse our sinful, distracted hearts and to form our minds. And so if you have a sin that you're holding on to, be honest with that. Be specific. Confess it to God. Don't, don't give the devil that foothold in your life to grieve over your sin. Don't celebrate your sin. Don't celebrate someone else's sin. We, we sometimes laugh at sin as if it's no big deal, but it is. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And his point is, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. We just don't hate sin enough. We need to see it for what it is. It is rebellion against God. It is destruction to the soul. It is upending to the world, or to, to, to the nations, damaging to marriages, hurtful to children. It is chaos. As you mourn your sin in humility, what do we see God does? But he draws near to you. See, it's the humble person who's confessing a sin that God can draw near to. And then verse 10 gives us a great promise that he will exalt you, right? When we acknowledge our sin, we see the perfection of his will. When we resolve to do it, he comes near in grace and in power. And drawing near to God, I can't encourage you more than to spend time in his word to spend time in prayer, to gather together again in care groups, and to do that together with other believers in a smaller, more intimate community where you can interact together around God's word. You know, if we're tired, we're worn out, we wonder how we'll make it through. We need that time where God draws near to us. And when we come in humility, he will. Now, just some corrections as we think about humility. We need to remember that humility is not thinking poorly about ourselves. I mean, it's not making us less than we are, right? I mean, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking about ourselves less. Some people think humility means that we need to think that we're terrible people, and that's wrong. I mean, we may be finite and sinners, but we're also the image of God, that God is loved, redeemed, saved, and equipped with gifts and talents, so we need to think accurately about ourselves. We need to see ourselves in light of what God says about us. And it's, there's a sort of human pride that we can have that speaks negatively about the image of God in us. When self-hatred comes, we think we have nothing to offer the world. It's a sort of insidious form of pride that we need to repent of. I mean, if you are alive, you are a precious image of God. If you are saved, you know the love of God, which is given to you. And you have gifts that the people around you really need. The fact that God made a way of salvation shows that you have a calling here in this world. Humility does not need to put up constant selfies on the internet so people see us. But it also does not mean we need to think... Um, negatively about ourselves 
But instead, we need to be focused on God, focused on others, and not self-absorbed. The more we think about others, putting the spotlight on what their needs are, is the more we can grow in humility. And that's why serving others is one of the best ways we can address this feeling of pride, whether it's the overly depressing thoughts or whether it's the, the overly self-aggrandizing thoughts. Right? I was really struck by this in Emily's testimony, you know, in seeing the needs that are out there, in seeing that but for the grace of God go I, in seeing the needs that are out there gets me off of thinking my troubles, gets me off of thinking my privileges that I have, it makes me think, you know, what's the need of this person right here in front of me? Isn't that what Jesus shows us? How Jesus humbled himself? Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. As we just think through humility today, it's worth reading this and spending time thinking about it. Philippians chapter 2 shows the humility of Christ in a way that... that um, encourages us. Remember what Jesus did? I mean, he washed his disciples' feet. Though he was a, a teacher, though he was a leader, though he was a savior, Messiah, and God in the flesh, he still washed his disciples' feet. And all of it grows out of this attitude that he shows us in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. We read this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with a thing to be grasped. Notice that, you know, here is the Son of God, you know, eternally present with God, um, receiving glory and honor in heaven all throughout eternity. But he says, I, I don't need to hold on to that. And it says, but equipped, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And to be found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He did this in humility before his father. He humbled himself. As an act of the will, something he didn't have to do, but something he chose to do, to honor this covenant of life which uh, he and the Father had made in order to redeem a people for his Father. He was going to be the sacrifice who would redeem them. Right? That's the humility of Christ. And only in biblical Christianity do we see humility um, exalted this level. If you look at other religions, um, they, they're about God's maintaining their position. Right, you see proud and fortitude that's there. But here we see the humility of God becoming man and even dying an ignominious death on the cross. But James 4, 6 says that God exalts the humble. And that's what we see starting in verse 9. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, God's, Jesus humbled himself, and God took that humility and will exalt his name. Already, you go around the world, billions and billions of people who know the name Jesus Christ and know him as Lord. And we see what will happen in the future. Every knee will bow before Christ at, at, at the end of history. Every knee will bow before his judgment uh, throne. His name has been exalted above all names. It's a reminder to us that the way, the way up starts with going down. It comes in resurrection life. It comes by humbling ourselves with others. It comes by humbling ourselves before God because it's in humility we find love and joy and exaltation 
blessedness. We see the fruit of the Spirit growing in our lives. Indeed, that's because God gives grace to the humble. May he do that with us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you say you will give grace to the humble, that you will exalt the humble. And Father, we bow before you today, submitting ourselves to your wisdom, your correction, to receiving your grace. Father, remind us of our sin. Remind us of all that we have that we've received. And Father, and as those memories grow, Father, may our humility grow. Help us be humble towards others, Father. Father, to, if, if we're digging our heels in in certain areas, the Father, we just have the humility to say, you know, I need to shift on this. I need to humble myself before you. If, if some of us are digging our heels in in sin and refusing to do the one thing that would help us to move out of it, Father, we would stop digging our heels in. If some of us are, are digging our heels in in conflict, Father, which is creating problems in our home or in the church, Father, that, that we'll be humble before you. Father, bring our desires before you and not insisting that others bow before them. Father, we just do pray you teach us humility and we're thankful for Christ, Christ himself who shows us the way, Christ himself who humbled himself so that we would be saved, Christ himself who's given us life. Father, we look to him. He's our hope because in his humility, he brought us life. We need that life to see fruit grow in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.